Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We've been talking about entering into his rest. And we saw in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, actually 1, 2, 3, and 4, that the rest that he's talking about there is the completed work that it refers to that God, the, God rested on the seventh day from the process of creation. And we saw that he didn't rest because he was tired, so the rest that the Bible's talking about is not a rest because we're worn out. And obviously we live in human bodies and we have human souls and our souls and our bodies can get tired and we do need to provide rest for our bodies and rest for our souls. It's not a sin to rest. We live in a culture that almost treats it as a sin if we don't burn out. But Jesus rested. The first time he sent his disciples out to minister, when they came back, he took them aside so that they could rest. So Jesus had seasons of ministry, seasons of rest. And so, again, we live in a culture that sometimes thinks of rest as some kind of, you're lazy, and if you don't just go 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and now in our society, that's not hard to do because information and people have access to us. I mean, there were people able to get a hold of us in the Dominican. You know, if you, if you allow it, People will have access to you, whether it's for your work or family, wherever you go, 24 hours a day. If I don't turn my phone down or off, it goes bing in the middle of the night. Somebody sent a message or something like that, or some telemarketer sent a message. So my point is, we have to intentionally set aside rest, and it's very important. But the rest that the Bible's talking about in Hebrews isn't a physical rest, although we need that. It is, a, it, is, it is the rest that God, we said, it labored to enter into His rest. His rest was He, he stopped because the work was done. On the seventh day, the work was done, so He rested from His work because there was no more work to do. And what we saw is the rest that we are to enter into as Christians is to enter into the completed work that Jesus did on the cross, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, then the work for our salvation, the work to cleanse us, as she just sang about the blood cleansing us, that work has been done. And where we have to labor is to enter into that because every instinct in us is to still work to get something that's already been purchased for us. And so the rest is to rest from our own striving, to measure up. Yes, we need to be good. We need to learn to grow in, in mature in the, in the gifts, of, in, in the, well, the gifts too, but in the fruit of the Spirit. But we, we're not doing that so that we're accepted by God. We're not doing that so that God loves us. We're not doing that so that we have an entrance into heaven. That's all done by the cross and only by the cross. And so we need to enter into that, that rest. But then there's another rest we began to look at, and that's what Jesus talks about here. Matthew chapter 11, very famous verses. But I saw something in here several weeks ago uh, from an aspect I'd never seen before. Verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor, and the New, King, the, the New American Standard says, are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now he's specifically talking here to people that, had, um, that were under tremendous burden of the law. The Pharisees and the Sadducees kept piling on them rules and regulations. And I think I shared with you, they took the original Ten Commandments and then other things that God told them to do and built them into over 600 rules and regulations. 
including not just whether you wash the cup, but how you wash the cup that you drank out of. And if you didn't do it the right way, you were considered to be ceremonial unclean, as if it were sin. And that's why they were kept getting upset at Jesus, because he didn't follow all the man-made rules. He obeyed God's rules, but he didn't follow the man-made rules. And he called them the traditions of man have made the word of God of no effect in our lives. So they were burdened down with all these rules that they had to keep in order to measure up, in order to be able to come into the temple, in order to be able to worship God. And if they didn't do them all right, then they were guilty and they couldn't come in. And he's calling this heavy laden, which, was a, which is an old English word that means burden, carrying this big weight of, of responsibility and pressure on our shoulders. And of course, we don't come to a church that has a whole bunch of rules and regulations And as Christians, we don't have a whole bunch of rules and regulations because what the New Testament says is God has taken those rules and written them in our heart. So instead, we have a conscience that we're to follow. God governs us through our conscience, not through words written down and and, and in stone as the Old Testament had. And so Jesus has come to me. All ye that are heavy or laden or, 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 or labor or are weary and I will give you rest. So there's a rest that Jesus is inviting us to. In fact, he's calling us to it. And he says, and of course, I've taught that many times before. But this is what I saw. Come to me. Now, how, how often when we're worn out, how often when we're discouraged, how often when the burdens of life or even just being a Christian get us so worn down, how often is our answer to pray? How often, what is, you just need to look at yourself and say, when you get to that place, and sometimes it takes us a while to realize we're at that place, what do you do? What do you turn to when you're weary? What do you turn to when you're discouraged? What do you turn to when you're just burdened with the pressures of life and the pressures of whether it's ministry or your job? What do you turn to? Food? TV? Pick up the phone and call somebody and begin to complain about it? You need to ask yourself, what do you do? do? Because Jesus tells us what to do. He says, come to me. And often that's the last thing we think of doing. Why? Oh, I can't come to him. Not feeling this way. I can't come to him because I haven't been reading my Bible enough. I haven't been praying enough and I maybe not haven't been tithing. And I haven't, I, I can't come to him. I just, the last, isn't it interesting? We saw, and this is what really opened me up to see a lot of these things. We saw a number of weeks ago, we looked at a scripture that's, that's very powerful because it says that the sinners and the prostitutes love to come and to sit at Jesus' feet and hear what he had to say. These are the people that their lives were a disaster and a mess. And here's the perfect Son of God, righteousness himself. And they love to come and sit at his feet and hear what he had to say. And we asked ourselves the question, do the sinners and the prostitutes, and the failures, and the drug addicts, the people who are in bondage to all those things, and alcohol, and all the, 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 the maybe, maybe neighbors you have, and co-workers, or maybe family members. 
but they just can't, they want to come to church and hear what God has to say. No, they don't. Or we'd have five services a day, a Sunday. They don't come. But if they wanted to come and hear what Jesus had to say, and they don't want to come and hear what we had to say, somewhere there's a disconnect. Somewhere we're not representing him. And that's where we begin to we need to begin to look at. But if we can't even get ourselves to come to him, when the sinners will come to him, maybe they see something in him we don't see or we've lost sight of since we first came to him. There have been times as a Christian and I've been a Christian for 35 years. There have been a times as a Christian, and I'm just being very honest with you, where I wish I could go back and get saved again, get a fresh start. Because I knew when I started with him, I had a clean slate. But then I look at back and say, well, you know, I probably didn't do what I should have done here. And you get this sense of, you know, I didn't do this, and I, you know, I'm not doing enough of this, and I'm not committed enough here. And, and, and you say, you do that? Oh, yeah. There's no weapon that Satan uses against you, the Bible says that he doesn't use against everybody else. And we get so burdened down with this sense of, I'm not measuring up, I'm not doing enough, that instead of running to him, we start hiding from him. So we don't pray enough, or we pray, but we pray routine prayers, so we can check it off and feel better about ourselves. But we're not really coming to commune with him because I don't want to hear what he has to say, because he's probably going to tell me, John, you haven't been praying enough. John, you haven't been doing this enough. John, and I don't, it's, you know, I don't want to hear that, because I don't want to get under condemnation and feel further burdened down. But the sinners came to him to hear what he had to say. So what he had to say must have given them hope. What he had to say must have communicated love and acceptance right where they were. And so here Jesus is telling us, when you're weary, when you're heavy laden, when you're burdened down, when you're discouraged, when you're just dragging yourself out of bed in the morning, when you're at that place, the answer, the beginning of the answer is to come to me. Don't call your relatives. Don't call your friends. Don't call other people to ask. Come to me for the answer. Come to me. And I will give you rest. You understand no person can give you rest. Not this kind of rest. Because I've been in that place where I've gotten down or discouraged and I'll call some pastor or talk to somebody and they'll, you know, you're in the will of God. I know you're doing this. And I said, I really appreciate that. But the only way I can have that peace is I know that from God. I appreciate your ideas. I appreciate your insight. But it's only what I, how he sees me that gives me the peace and the rest. And so that rest can only come from him. That peace can only come from Him, but in order for it to come from Him, you've got to come to Him, just as you are. But isn't that what you did in the beginning? Isn't that what we did at the beginning? We came to Him just as we are. There's an old expression I heard years ago as part of an altar call when someone was giving an altar call, and they said, look, if you think that you're too dirty to come to Jesus and get saved, that's like the person that says, look, before I take a bath, I better take a shower because I'm too dirty to take a bath. Jesus cleanses. 
He cleanses us. That's what that beautiful song we heard earlier. His blood cleanses us, not just from the sin, but from the guilt and the shame of that sin. And that blood still flows even 35 years after I got saved. One of my favorite scriptures in Hebrews 4, 16, it says, Come boldly. That means with confidence to the throne of grace to refine, find mercy and help in time of need. He's talking to Christians. When you stumble, when you fall, when you make a mistake, when you sin, don't run away from Him. Run to Him. Because there is no help. There is no peace. There is no forgiveness running away from Him. It's running to Him. Come to me. Come to me. That's getting on your knees. That's opening your heart. And that's getting honest and real with him. This is where I am. You know, he won't be shocked when you tell him where you are. (laughs) When you confess your sin to him is not when he finds out about it. When you tell him, look, I'm at the bottom of the barrel. I'm ready to quit. He's not going, oh, I never knew you'd ever get there. He just needs us to be honest with Him. To put away the pretense and be honest with Him. Come to me. All. No exceptions. doesn't matter how you got there. It doesn't matter where you are. Come to me. All you. Not just the pastors. Not just the Sunday school teachers. Come to me. All that labor are weary and are heavy laden. And let's see what else He tells us to do here. And I will give you rest. The only rest that is truly restful is the rest that He gives us. The only rest that truly gives us peace is the rest and the peace that He gives us. And I will give you rest. Notice there's no conditions there except we come. He's not saying, look, I will consider your case and analyze it and evaluate it and decide what I'm going to give you. He tells us what He will give us if we will come to Him. We don't have to guess. If I come to Jesus in this state, if I come to Jesus when I'm so down and discouraged, if I come to Jesus when I fail, when I come to Jesus, I don't know what He's going to do. He tells us what He's going to do. And he doesn't lie. One of my favorite scriptures is in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of a man that he should change his mind. Has he not said it, and shall he not give it, shall he not bring it, come bring it about? Jesus promises you that if you will come to him in that state, if you will come to him, he will give you rest. But then he tells us how to receive the rest. Take my yoke upon you, which is the burden or the responsibility. Many times we get worn out and burdened and burned out because we put on ourselves a yoke or a burden he didn't put on us. Take my yoke, which is the one I have for you, 
Take my yoke upon you. That's the first thing he tells us to do. So that may mean you've got to take the yoke, the responsibility, the pressure, the, the, the obligations that you have put on yourself or with the devil's help and lay it aside and find out what yoke he has for you. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday. They just get so in life, you just begin to feel... Now, there's some people that don't feel responsible for anything. That's called irresponsible. But most of us are not like that. We feel responsible for things that God hasn't given us responsibility for because our culture, our society, our family just communicated to you, you're responsible for this and you're responsible for this. I mean, one of the things I'm having to renew my mind to is I was raised in a family where you were expected to eat everything on your plate. And, and many of you in the generation were expected to eat you know, and my mother was an excellent cook and there were five boys and you had to clean your plate because if you didn't clean your plate, there was something wrong either with the food, which you didn't want to say, or, you know, that's my mother had a way of pulling her glasses down and looking at you and you ate that food. Well, I've discovered you don't have to eat everything on your plate because I sometimes get a restaurant and they've given me far more than I need to eat, but there's something compelling in me. I need to finish that. And I finally realized it's because I was raised to feel a responsibility to eat everything on my plate. And I go back and reevaluate that. Is that true? And that's just a small example of it. But in life, we pick up responsibility for people, responsibility, and, and we, many of us come from families that, that are one degree or other dysfunctional, which means we, that we have people in our family place obligations on us. They use guilt to manage the family. Guilt to motivate people to do things that love is what's supposed to motivate it. And so we manipulate one another to getting them to do what we want to know. And what manipulation is, is I'm making you feel responsible for something I'm responsible for. I can't tell you the times I've had to, to minister to, and other staff members have too, to, to a, a situation where you have one or, one or more spouse that's addicted to something. And whenever that's happened, you always have two sides to that. You have the one that's addicted, and you have the one that's enabling them to be addictive because it's a game that's being played back and forth kind of like a dance you cannot dance together my wife and I cannot ballroom dance if one of us refuses to, to move with the other it takes two to tango is the expression and I guess that doesn't it I guess that's where that expression comes from and so in order for that to survive in order for these kinds of things to work in families and it's not just addiction it can be true it's in all kinds of areas. We have to... This is not the direction I was thinking I was going to go in today. We have to learn... We have to learn to not accept burdens that God didn't put on us. Now, the other side of that is sometimes we don't pick up burdens He did. The most famous one is you have the, 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 the Pharisee that said, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Now, I'm not responsible for my brother. And Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan as an example of we're all a brother's keeper to some degree, all right? So the point is this. We put our burdens on ourselves and other people put burdens on us that Jesus didn't give us. And when we're weighed down by those, we don't have the energy and the time to carry the burdens that he did give us. Notice he didn't say, you're supposed to live life without any yoke. He said, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But here's the key, and this is where we're headed. 
says, take my yoke, verse 29, take my yoke upon you. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, learn from me. And this is the part I think we so often miss. And when I used to teach this, this is the part I missed. I just didn't see it. He's saying, there's something I want you to learn from me, and if you'll learn it from me, you'll enter into the rest that I enter into. Jesus wasn't stressed out. And if there's anybody that had an opportunity to get stressed out, it was Jesus. I mean, think about it. He knows that the only reason he's here is to die. Not just die, but die a hideous, painful, shameful death on a cross. That's his end goal. God's given him a staff that doesn't understand why he's here, don't get his messages continually, has infighting among it as to who's going to sit on his right and left in the kingdom. It wasn't just James and John. The rest of them got upset. We'll look at that later on. They didn't understand his heart. And when the ultimate crisis of his life came, they disappeared. And that was his staff. One of them is a traitor, and that's his treasurer. Then you've got the next larger group of disciples, a larger group of 70, and they disappear when he starts teaching tough things. And then there's a large group that just comes and goes for food, let alone the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were always opposing him, and his own family that didn't understand him. Now, you an opportunity to get discouraged. And you can, you know, we forget sometimes Jesus was human too. And you can hear it in some of the words. When everybody else leaves him and he turns and looks at the twelve, he says to them, are you going to leave also? I don't believe that was just a statement of theology. I believe there was emotion. Are you going to leave me also? He wept at Lazarus' tomb, not for Lazarus because he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He wept for Mary and Martha because he saw and was touched with the pain they were going through, even knowing that in a few minutes he was going to bring their brother back to them. He would get frustrated with his disciples. How long do I have to put up with this generation of unbelief? Oh, ye of little faith. There was emotion in that. He was human as well as God. And he says to them at the end, my peace I give you. My peace. Not the peace the world gives you, but my peace. Come and learn from me. So there's something about him. He says, if you learn from me, you learn what I'm like, who I am, what my character and nature is like, it will bring you rest. It will bring you Rest. Now turn with me to John chapter 13. This is where we were last time. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That means to the limit as well as to the end of time. 
And supper being ended, and actually that means supper being served, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that his father had given all things into his hands, and that he come from the father was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, I talked, but it's been three weeks since we went over this. So I'm going to briefly remind you what this is, what's happening here, the significance of this. In those days, most of the roads weren't paved, and the ones that were paved were dusty and dirty. And people wore sandals that were open. And so the custom was, as you came into someone's house that was of any wealth, that they would have a servant, they would have servants, and the lowest servant, the most menial servant, was assigned the job of of coming to the guest that came into the house, and while that guest was being greeted by somebody, the servant took the sandals off your feet, and there was a basin of water, and there was a towel there, and they would take the water from the basin and wash your feet, and then dry your feet from a towel, and either clean your sandals and put them back on, or give you something else to wear. It was to refresh you. And it was so menial, it was so common that most likely as you were having conversation with your host or whoever greeted you, you didn't even realize that this was going on. It was just they were washing your feet because it was, it was so low, so menial, you didn't even pay attention to it. Well, this room where they're having this last supper together is a rented room. It's, it's not, there's no host. And so the landlord because it was the custom, had provided a basin, water, and a towel so that they could wash their own feet. But they come in as Jesus' disciples because they were with the Master. They were with the Lord. They were in a privileged position. And it says they were seated at the table. And understand the tables that they sat at were not like your dining room table or my dining room table. You didn't sit at a chair and your legs went right under the table and your hands here. They were about that far off the floor. And so you, you either reclined on a pillow or some kind of chair with your feet extended out, which means my feet were extended into your face. The point is they all knew their feet hadn't been washed. But the significance here is They all knew this, but nobody did it. They were disciples of Jesus. They were the ones that had been used to hand out the bread when Jesus fed the 5,000 and to hand out the bread when he fed the 4,000. They were the ones that were used when he sent out and they, they, they laid hands on the sick and they recovered and they raised the dead and they cast out demons. Jesus used them for ministry and powerful things happened through them. So they were the second level down. They were the next level down after Jesus. So they didn't do these kind of things. That was for a servant to do. And this says, at some point in the meal, Jesus gets up and he goes over to the basin of water. We don't know if it's on a table or on the floor. And he takes off his outer robe and he lays it aside. And he picks up the covering, the towel of the lowest slave. And he wraps himself in the towel of a slave. And he comes to them and he gets down with a basin of water. And he begins to wash their feet. Powerful lesson. 
But the thing I'd never seen before, and we mentioned it last time, is look what happens when he comes to Peter. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? In the Greek, it says this. Lord, you my feet wash. The emphasis is this. Jesus is saying to him, you're going to wash my feet? Peter's mind couldn't get wrapped around that. Because Peter understood more than anybody who he was. Peter's the one that God had given the revelation to when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a great prophet. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus, Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' flesh and blood didn't tell you that, but my Father in heaven revealed Peter had a revelation of who Jesus was, that he was, is. He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God here in the flesh. Peter had that revelation of who he was, but he didn't have a revelation of what he was like. Many of us have a revelation of who he is, but we don't have a revelation of what he's like. And because of that, here's Peter's attitude. I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet. You have this backwards. Because of who you are, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I should be washing your feet. That would feel right. That would satisfy me to have an opportunity to wash your feet because of who you are. And Jesus says to him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place with me. And actually before that, Peter says, no, you can't wash my feet. That's when Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place with me. What's Jesus saying to him here? What's he getting at with Peter? It's interesting because of all the disciples, the 12 that Jesus had, plus the others that he had, there are really only two that the Bible singles out and tells us much about. One is John, and most of what we know about John comes from the Gospel of John. And of course, John's brother James. But the other, the one we hear the most about, the one we see over and over again, singled out, good and bad, is Peter. And I believe the reason is because there is some of Peter in every one of us. I never saw myself like Peter because I saw Peter's bold and willing to step out and be first, and he was confident, and I don't see myself as bold and confident and willing to step out. That's just not my person. I mean, you look at me and say, oh, come on. No, I'm actually a shy person. You may look and say, how is that? Because when I get up here and when I step into what I'm called to do, the shyness goes away. But before I step up here, I'm shy, and after I step down, I'm shy. But I'm not shy when I'm up here because I'm stepped into it. And then when you get out of your blue seat... And you take your slippers and your bathrobe off and you go do what you're supposed to do, you will find out you're not who you think you are either. 
Just had to put that plug in. Where was I? <laughs> Peter. But Peter's not just bold. It's not just his boldness. There's an inner attitude Peter had, which is what I think we all have to some degree. Peter's focus was on his commitment to Jesus. To become more and more committed to Christ. To love Him more and more and more. In fact, I believe Peter had an attitude, and I'll show you why in a minute, that Peter had an attitude. His ambition was to love Him more than the other disciples loved Him. To be more committed than the other disciples were committed. To be a better, better disciple than the rest of them. Because when Jesus, when after he fall, fails and denies Jesus three times, in John's Gospel, there's a story of Peter's restoration. And Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And I've read all kinds of commentaries about what the these are. Some say it's the fish. Do you love me more than the fish or you, than, than fishing? Do you love me more? I believe it's really simple. I believe he's saying to G, Peter, do you still think you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because it's interesting in the Greek, Jesus says, do you agape me? That's the highest level of love. That's the self-sacrificial love that God loves us with and that Christ loves us with. And he's saying, do you, do you still think you love me that you die for me? And Peter's answer is, Lord, I love you, but the word is phileo, which is a brotherly love, which is based on what I get back. I love you because there's something about you worthy to be loved. I love you because I get something from you. It's a friendship type of love. So he's saying... I love you like a friend. I don't love you with a sacrificial love. And then the second time, Jesus says the same thing. Peter, do you love me with a sacrificial love? Agape me. And Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. Peter's become aware. He's been humbled down to knowing himself where he really is. Because before, Peter says, I'll die with you. I'll agape you. I'll go to the cross with you. I'll die for you. That's how committed I am. And Jesus looks at him and says, before the cock crows, you'll have denied me three times. You'll have done the unthinkable thing. And Peter says, never! He was so confident in his commitment to Christ. But isn't Jesus gracious? He doesn't stand to him and says, you fool, you idiot. Because when he comes back to restore him in the end of the Gospel of John, the third time Jesus says to him, Peter, do you phileo me? He drops the level of what he expected. And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. Each time he recommissions Peter to do what he called him to do before, then go feed my sheep. Go tend to my lambs. He recommissions him out again because Peter's come to this self-awareness that his, the strength of his relationship with Christ is not based on Peter's commitment to Christ. The strength of his relationship is based on Christ's commitment to him. And this is what's getting exposed here. Because what Peter is saying to him is, No, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should clean my feet. I should be the one that's cleaning your feet because of who you are. And that sounds wonderful, but it's spiritual pride when Christ has said, no, I have to wash your feet. And pride is a tricky thing 
Because pride, the most obvious type of pride is, ah, I'm the sharpest thing here in the church. I'm the best speaker. I'm the best at this. Boy, I just really look at me. I'm the best at this. That's an obvious type of pride. But there's another type of pride, the other side of that, which is more subtle, which is, I can't do anything. Who am I? I keep failing. I got to stay in that blue chair because I can't do anything. I have nothing to offer. When God has said, I've called you. And when you say, I can't do it, that's pride. It is a spiritual pride that says, but I'm not enough. Of course you're not enough. Don't you think God knows you're not enough? He's not counting on how much enough you are. He wants you to learn to trust in how much He is. So what Jesus is saying to Peter is, unless you let me serve you, Unless you let me meet your need. Unless you let me love you, you can't possibly serve me. Interesting expression that Jesus gives to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 when he's commissioning them and sending them out. He says to them when he's sending them out the first time, freely you've received, freely give. And many Christians are trying to give something they haven't received. And then what they give is legalism. What they give doesn't have love in it. What they give doesn't have compassion in it. We look our nose down at somebody and say, You're a sinner. You're this. You're that. That's why they don't come and sit at our feet to hear what he's saying. Because they feel the judgment from us not the love. Yes, it's sin. Yes, it's wrong. But yes, we've sinned and yes, we've been wrong. But the number one quality Jesus wants us to see about Himself is that He's meek and He's humble and He's lowly of heart. That He came to serve. That He came to love us first. That He came to give Himself to us first. And I'll end with this because I shared it with you last time. We'll pick up here next time because we have the Lord's table to share. The interesting thing, and I've shared this several times before, but I still keep going over it myself because it's so profound. Again, there's two disciples that are emphasized. There's Peter. Peter's confidence was in his commitment to the Lord. See, your confidence, you may not be confident in your commitment to the Lord, but what you may be trying to do is to become more committed. You're trying to become more committed. And we should be committed, but our commitment is a response to seeing who He is, not because we've developed that commitment ourselves. Because then we're coming to the place where either we're confident in our relationship with Him because we're confident in our commitment or we have discouraged in our relationship because we're not confident in our commitment. In either event, it's based on my commitment. Then there was John. And John referred to himself not as the disciple who loved Jesus, but John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't it interesting, when the crisis came, when their leader, when the one they'd given up everything to follow, 
is nailed to a cross. Peter's long gone. He was the first to cave in. The one that was confident in his commitment to Christ was the first to cave in. The only one who stood with him through it all, the one who was at the foot of the cross, was the man whose confidence was in how much Jesus loved him. And Jesus says to Peter, unless you allow me to love you and to serve you and to minister to you and to clean you up, you will never be able to come to me because you'll be out there on your own. And we may start out knowing that, but somehow in church we get going and the culture of the world has gotten into the culture of the church. Ambition, drive. But we turn it into spiritual ambition and spiritual drive. And we get worn out and we get weary. And Jesus says, when you do that, come to me because something's gotten off. Learn what I'm like. Because this is what I'm like, he's saying. Because what we're going to see then is then he tells them to go do that for one another. But you can't do it for one another if you haven't let him do it to you first. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We ask you to continue to open our eyes to see what Jesus has done for us. Not just back when we were first saved, but what he does for us every day. And Lord, expose in us whatever pride, whatever it is that's keeping us from coming to him and trusting him and allowing Him to wash us and to cleanse us and to minister to us and to love us. Break down the barriers that are in the way of that understanding and that revelation. In Jesus' name, amen.